Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, everyone. I'm Sue from the Salveston Mindrum Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm recording another episode of our psychological podcast. So this is a podcast that we started during lockdown. Um, and basically what we're trying to do is make a bit of an evidence-based contribution to the conversations that people have been having about child and adolescent well-being and development and learning, which seem to have become you know, even more um, present in our public discourse at the moment during this coronavirus pandemic. So today's psychological is with Teresa Cavasoli who's an associate professor at the University of Reading. And she's going to talk to me about a paper looking at the relationship between sensory reactivity differences and anxiety subtypes in autistic children. So hello, Teresa. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you today? Good. Thank you, Sue. And thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. <laughs> Not at all. I'm delighted to have you on. Um, so could you start by just telling me um, something that you think you discovered in doing this piece of research, please? Yes. So um, in this study, which was co-founded by Autistica and NQ, we looked at the relationship between sensory reactivity and anxiety in autistic children. And what we found was that sensory hyperreactivity, so this might mean that anyone who is overly sensitive or overwhelmed by stimuli-like sounds, so sensory hyperreactivity was linked to anxiety, specifically to physical injury fears and specific phobias. And um, that in some ways makes sense because phobias often in autism seem to be related to specific sensory stimuli. So someone might report they might not like to go into a park because there might be a dog barking and they don't like the sound of this. So the first finding, yes, sensory hyperreactivity being linked to specific phobias, even when we take into account other autistic traits. And another interesting finding we had was that um, we actually found a minimal agreement between different measurements for anxiety, which you see for other psychological constructs as well. But here we basically, we used the parent report as well as the self-report for anxiety, but they didn't line up too much. So um, for example, general anxiety, parents reported in 74% of the cases that their children have anxiety symptoms. However, only 17% of children actually said that they feel anxious. So mm. I that these two things were, were our main findings, discoveries. Amazing. So I think for a long time there's been a feeling in the autistic community that, that as a research um, uh, community, we haven't paid enough attention to kind of sensory reactivity and sensory profiles, right? Um, yeah. So I wonder, do you agree with that? And, and, you know, could you tell me a little bit about what made you decide that, that sensory reactivity was an interesting component to study in this context? Yeah. So um, actually, I started to be interested in the topic of sensory reactivity while I was an undergraduate student in Germany. And um, I worked in a psychiatry there, and there was a young woman with autism, and she seemed to be perceiving the world very differently from the way I perceive the world. So, for example, for touch, she didn't like to wear certain clothing. So any wool clothing, she would just rip off. She didn't like running water or taking um, showers. It was really difficult for her. And she had few to no words. So for her, it seemed to be difficult to tell me 
what is frustrating for her. So, and I, I started to be interested in the, the idea that we all perceive the world differently. Um, mm-hmm. but for some people, it seems to be overwhelming, has a, a stronger impact on daily life than for others. And so I started off just being over 10 years ago than when I did my PhD and just to see how is sensory activity affected? Is it affected in, in autism? And um, we found that over the years that around 60 to 80% of individuals um, with autism seem to be hyperreactive, so being overwhelmed by the environment, or hyporeactive, not not as responsive, or seeking, so seeking out stimulation. Um, but mm-hmm. now, more recently, I've been more interested in the, the link to particular mental health. And we, we kind of know about sensory activity is common. And we also know that mental health or so anxiety is, is about 40% of autistic individuals do show anxiety symptoms, but we don't really know the link um, or how it co-develops. So that's, that's more what I'm interested in at the moment. Hmm. Amazing. And could you tell us a bit more then about how you did the study? So I know you mentioned that you used um, self-report measures and parent mm-hmm. report measures for anxiety. Did you measure sensory reactivity in the same way? So usually, yes, I do. And I think that's, that's one take-home message potentially from this podcast as well, is that I would say, if possible, try to use multiple measures and combine them to mm-hmm. to understand the concept more. So here we did use, for anxiety, we we used, a parent report dispense anxiety scale and we use the computer game the Dominic Interactive which is a mental health screening tool and the self report where children see different scenarios a character Dominic and Dominic says I feel sad where my parents leave for example for separation anxiety and then the child has to say yes I feel like Dominic or I don't um, mm. and for sensory we usually use a combination of observations and um, as well as parent report. However, here, because we had a very wide range of kids and the age level was very wide, we just, we, in the end, we only used the parent report. So the sensory processing scale inventory, which was developed by occupational therapists Lucy Miller and Sarah Schoen, and it's asking about hyperreactivity. So things like my child is bothered by light and hyperreactivity and seeking. So for seeking could be something, my child has difficulties disengaging from a spinning up, like looking at a spinning object. So um, we we use that because it measures hyper, hyper, and seeking. Um, mm-hmm. But the the research going forward or my current work is always looking at a parent report, a parent interview, and an observation for sensory, but but not in this, in this not in this study. Mm. And could you just tell us a little bit more then about those autistic children who took part? So. You know, what were they like? You mentioned a wide age range. Yeah, so we um, we had 41 autistic children, and they were aged 3 to 14. And oh, we yeah. had 27 boys and 14 girls. And we also, for the cognitive level, their Q range from 77 to 140. So we had quite, we tried to mm. um, had a, have a large range of, um, of yeah, of, age and also um, cognitive levels. For, for this study, most children did use verbal language. Um, there were only a handful who had few to no words. So usually I try to have, um, I, I do try to include everyone. But here, because we had the computer game, the kids mm-hmm. were a little bit more talkative <laughs> than usual. Sure. But that's, a, I mean, that's great to work with such a kind of variable group, right? Yeah. Because I think this is a mistake 
we make a lot in autism research specifically, but also in a lot of kind of research with, you know, clinically defined populations is that we we over-refine our research samples so that they don't bear any relationship to real people, you know, yeah. to, the, to the range of experiences around in the real world. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, and so in terms of analysis, um, I mean, was this kind of straightforward correlations between measures? Did you look at the effective age, for example, across that nice diverse sample? Yes, so definitely. I think that's a, that's a good point. So the analysis was, I didn't actually conduct it. I just did after with my PhD student, Karen, who is brilliant and um, all, like the, she ran all the analysis. And mm-hmm. But what we've done was we wanted to look at the relationship between sensory and anxiety. Um, so first of all, I think we, which we always do, is we look at just descriptors. What does the data look like? Um, mm-hmm. Are there any outliers? Is is the data normally distributed? Is there a good range of data, or uh, have all our kids been very anxious or not anxious at all? Um, and there were no outliers in the sample. And as mentioned, because we had quite a range of age, so we had um, also different scales. For instance, it's the same spends anxiety scale, but they use slightly different items because some kids were very young, so preschoolers, and some kids were already teenagers. So we needed to um, have a standardized way of score. So we Z-scored all the scales and standardized them to combine them. And what you mentioned, age, so I think it's always important to see if you have a very heterogeneous group, which you, which I think, as we discussed, we want to have. So you don't want to have but I think it's good to include children with different verbal skills, with different age levels. But um, we did check if age has an effect or cognitive skills, and it didn't in the sample. And I found that before as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we did also, given that we looked at subscales of anxiety, which hasn't really been done before. It's mm-hmm. broadly with anxiety, but we looked at general anxiety, specific phobias, and so forth. And we did also correlate, um, we, sorry, we did also run multiple comparisons then. Um, and what we found was that, so age didn't have an effect, IQ didn't have an effect, but autistic traits were linked to being hyperreactive. So the more autistic traits, the more hyperactivity and the more anxiety. So we did mm-hmm. um, run also partial correlations, taking autistic traits into account. And there were, before that, hyperactivity was linked to separation anxiety as well as um, specific phobias. But after co- correlating for autistic traits, the specific phobia still stayed the same, but the separation anxiety wasn't significant anymore. So mm-hmm. there seems to be something going on with, with that link as well. But mm-hmm. it's rather straightforward analysis, I would say. Well, you know, there's no need to overcomplicate these things. I mean, I think it sounds like a very thorough process. Yeah. So, so I want to ask about what you think we can learn from this, but in terms of sort of practice and the, you know, the sort of causality here and so on. But before I do that, I just want to pick up on the second result that you shared with us right at the beginning, um, which was that the parent report measures of anxiety and the self-report measures of anxiety didn't line up. And if I remember correctly, I think the parents were, um, well, this is my question, I suppose, were the parents overestimating or were the children underestimating the, the degree of anxiety that they experienced? How do you interpret that that mismatch? Yeah, so I think this is, it's an interpretation. We don't know, but I think mm. it's, 
exactly what you said. So I think on one hand, it might be difficult for a child to report on their anxiety level. So it might mm. be difficult to identify the emotions, especially for children. The, the, this measure starts from around the age of six. Mm. On the other hand, I often do think that parents might over-report a little bit. And I think potentially it might be because there's just a heightened awareness of um, parents when you have an autistic child that they're often so informed and maybe a heightened awareness, a lot of knowledge might also lead to the fact that you may be over-reporting. So especially, let's say, for general anxiety, that there was such a difference. So 74% of parents said, my child has generalized anxiety, but only 17% of autistic kids felt they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the agreement between different raters, so self versus parent report, it's only 33%. So and let's say a third of the children, parents said one thing and the child said the same. However, in the, the, the two-thirds, the 70% of the time, they didn't agree. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's specific to anxiety measures. I think you see that across different constructs. So we see it as well for sensory that often parents um, with who have kids with a neurodevelopmental condition um, might be very aware and also they do see the children in so many different areas and report more symptoms than we see when we test sensory symptoms directly. So it's something sure. I came across before as well. But I think, uh, yeah, exactly what you said, that might, it might be hard to identify own emotions for children and parents also have a heightened awareness and report more than we see. Yes, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, then, to try and capture alexithymia potentially as part of that, right? <laughs> so, you know, whether high rates of alexithymia make it harder for people to engage with some of these self-report tools um, yeah. in an accurate way. So, of course, I mean, that's, you know, that's a big question, isn't it? What's accurate, right? There's the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel it's, there is no truth. I feel yeah. you said, you want to look at anxiety or you want to look at sensory. And I think it's best to use multiple measures and see if they're yeah. correlated somehow. So that there are, for sensory, for example, there are correlated direct measures, observations and questionnaires. So that, that, that's good. They're, they're measuring somehow something similar. But then mm-hmm. I would say combine them. So standardized scores and combine them. I feel like to get a better understanding of, of sensory activity across what, what parents see, what children feel or show themselves. Mm-hmm. That's my, yeah, what I would do. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's some some useful lessons for researchers. But what do you think? What do you think are the lessons from this work for um, for the autistic community, or maybe for parents or teachers? You know, what what would you extrapolate from this? Do you think? Um, so I think that that what we see or learn from this is that sensory activity is important and the way we perceive the world around us has an impact on life and has an impact on mental health and anxiety. And here we, we, we saw very young children, like some, some of them are three and have more studies now for three to five year olds and we already in that young age see a link. So um, I think if you're aware of the links between sensitivity and the impact or the link with anxiety, that's important. It could mm-hmm. also have clinical implications, for example, if we, if we understand this link and, for example, sensory activity can be supported quite early on with occupational therapy, for example. However, with anxiety, often families have to wait until the child is six or seven before mm-hmm. they get any support. But if we know 
that a child who is quite hyperreactive to the world, they don't like sound, they don't like touch, they might not like flickering lights, there is a link to anxiety. I think if you have more of an kind of eclectic approach to supporting the child, you could you could just help them with sensory, but also maybe with breathing techniques or other techniques that might help for anxiety to prepare them. I, I would say that that's one, one aspect, so there's an impact, be aware of it, and try to support both. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing, so that's great. The other thing I think this adds just conceptually, and this is something that I think is a bit of a pattern in, in some of the autism research literature at the moment, is, you know, reconceptualizing autistic anxiety yes. as a sort of very logical response to a world that is, is, you know, potentially painful in a, in a sensory way or, or, you know, sort of deeply upsetting. So we can often characterize, don't we, various um, uh, features of autism, but also these sort of co-occurring conditions like anxiety as, um, you know, a sort of almost like a coincidental pathology, you know, like, oh, you're autistic and you happen to be anxious as well. But actually, you know, this relationship between sensory reactivity and anxiety highlights how how much it makes sense for autistic people to feel anxious when they're constantly encountering a really challenging sensory world, right? That's something... Yeah, no, I think, and that's important as well. I think often in educational settings, a child um, said, oh, they have behavioral issues. Mm. But then when you actually look into it, it's it's often um, like my daughter's nursery setting there, um, some children who are autistic, they, it's it's often at the same time when the gardener is there and there's a loud sound when they're cleaning outside. The child doesn't have behavioral issues. It's just really hard for the child mm-hmm. to deal with that mm-hmm. sound. It might be painful, mm-hmm. as you said, and they can't communicate that that is the issue. And um, I think if if there's more awareness that it's not someone trying to be challenging, but it, it might be because there's a loud sound and helping equipping kids with strategies to deal with it, I think mm-hmm. would would help. And and the other aspect, what you just said with anxiety, that it might be a bit more specific in, in autism, which I think is quite important as well because it's not captured enough, I think, with current measures. So we also try the direct observation of anxiety where mm. children, for example, have to put their hand in a mystery jar or there's a spider on the floor. And that works really well for children who might be non-autistic. However, we didn't, we couldn't really use the data because the kids were very excited about the spider and just played with the spider. <laughs> they just put their hand in the mystery jar and we were not even fast enough to take the time it takes them to explore these toys. So I feel they need to understand anxiety and autism better. Um, there needs to be slightly more specific measures. They have to be validated in this group of yeah. kids. Um, and there, there are some, there, there are definitely people who are working on this which I think is really important. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, those examples. It's great. Um, so one final question then um, is, I, I realize now that I didn't warn you this about this before we started recording, so um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because um, one of the things we've been thinking about the podcast is sort of early career researchers and students mm-hmm. who might be listening and whether you had any sort of words of wisdom that you might like to impart to them as they are early in their academic journey um, from your, you know, position of um, lofty <laughs> establishment. Yeah. Well, what would uh, you say to them? 
Yeah, and I'm only recently slightly more established. I don't really feel I'm quite there yet. But um, I think from from the story, the personal story I shared before about how I got interested in this, um, I think it's important that you follow questions, research questions that interest you. And um, I, I personally, I think you can learn a lot from the if you are interested in autism, you learn a lot from the autistic community. And I think you, you have to work together to ask the right questions. And then I would say um, always ask the question and have ideas. Um, and if you if you have that, I think you just try to follow them and see where, where you'll get it. And I feel like that there will always be more questions. But if you if you have questions and if you have ideas, I think that's what you need to be, be a scientist. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but that's that's great because um, questions and ideas, you know, they're free, right? So that's yeah. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. marvelous. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Teresa. It was great talking about this piece of research with you. I'm really pleased that you were able to come on the podcast. And for anyone listening, you'll be able to find out more about Teresa's work by following the links in the podcast description. Thanks very much, Teresa. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly.